and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks to all of you who continue to support the podcast and share these conversations on social media. It means the world to us when we get a tweet or we see someone like a conversation on LinkedIn or Facebook or even when I get a text from someone saying that they enjoyed an episode that we did or I see someone out in the real world in in public. I say the real world now. It's so funny. We we live in such a social world and technology drives so much. But even when I see you on the street and you say, hey, Brian, I love that conversation or I love that episode or that person was so interesting. It really means the world to me. So thank you all for giving me that gift and sharing these conversations. If you like this podcast, if you like today's episode, please go over to iTunes and write us a review. Hopefully you'll feel inspired enough and moved enough to give us five stars. And once again, thank you to all of you who continue to make this podcast go. Now to today's guest. Kevin Lavelle has done a lot in a a short amount of time. So he's still a young guy who is really trying to make an impact and a dent on the world. And he's done it in multiple ways. So he is the founder and chairman of the board of Mizzen and Maine. He was the CEO before stepping down to take on the chairman of the board role. And Mizzen Maine is an innovative company transforming the landscape of the apparel industry by making the world's most comfortable dress shirt. And I know this to be true because when I told people that I was going to interview Kevin, they said, gosh, I love his clothing. If you are around golfers, a lot of golfers love Mizzen Maine. And he's really been innovative and creative as far as how they market the product. He's used all kinds of creative ways to get people's attention, including working with athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. And Ms. Maine is carried in well over 750 retail locations, in addition to its rapidly expanding e-commerce presence and pop-up shops. The company has been featured in the New York Times, Esquire, the Wall Street Journal, Men's Health. Uh, Ms. Maine has become a staple in the clothing industry, and Kevin has driven a lot of that process. And he decided that he wanted to leave it in better hands. So he stepped down as a CEO and stepped into that role as chairman of the board, as I mentioned earlier, to really pursue a passion of his and really 
try to make a difference in this world. So he today is a senior vice president at Stand Together, which is a nonprofit that aims to help social entrepreneurs supercharge their efforts to help people improve their lives. So they connect those people with passionate partners and the resources necessary to make a greater difference in this world. So they are a philanthropic community. They tackle some of the nation's biggest challenges so that every person has the opportunity to realize their full potential. And Stand Together tries to work across party lines to really make an impact and help our society thrive. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Kevin. He's going to share his journey, his mindset, why he decided to take a leap and go towards Stand Together, why he decided to take a leap earlier in his career and start Miz and Maine. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Kevin Lavelle. Kevin, excited to have you on the podcast. We've been going back and forth a long time since Jake Thompson connected us uh, and just really excited to connect with you in D.C. It's a lot better than doing it remote. Uh, and we sat and just chatted for about 30 minutes and it was cool yeah. to hear why you're here and how it's going. And I'm a proud Washingtonian and maybe we'll get into being from Dallas and how there are some differences between Dallas and Washington, including football, but we'll, we'll, we'll stay away from that. Yeah, there's a big difference right now. I don't think anyone, there you go. See, he's already ribbon. <laughs> there's, there's not really anything to talk about in this city right now when it comes to uh, American football, but we've got other things that we are proud of and we're excited about. Uh, where I thought I'd start is we were talking about business and we were talking about what it's been like for you to be a CEO and uh, start a business and we'll get into what you're doing now. But I'd like to go back because as I was doing research on you, I don't really have a sense of what your upbringing was like, what life was like. You mentioned living in Dallas, uh, but tell me a bit about what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, great question. So um, I was actually born in the Northeast, uh, born outside of Princeton and then um, moved to Philadelphia outside of Philly and then from there moved to Florida. Uh, so I, I, I say I grew up in Florida, but I didn't move there until I was 10. So a little bit of Northeast and a little bit of Florida. Um, and then I went to SMU in Dallas for, uh, for college. Uh, Go scholarship. back real quick. What brought you down to Florida? Why did you guys move? It was my dad's job. Um, he had um, moved. My parents moved six times in seven years before I was born. Uh, so they moved a lot. And uh, there was an opportunity in Florida that he ended up going uh, and uh we, we pursued that in, I say we pursued that like I had any choice. I was, I think I was 10 when we moved down. Um, and of course, at the age of 10, your world ends when you move. And then in a very short period of time, you just adapt and just move on. Um, but uh, growing up in Florida was, it was a great place to grow up. I mean, it's beautiful all year round. Got to play a lot of different sports. Um, I grew up playing golf and tennis and soccer and baseball and um, when you move to Florida, you get to do that all year round. It's just a lot more humid. And uh, my focus in, in high school, I, I kind of narrowed my focus to be golf and soccer uh, and then quickly realized that I wasn't good enough to stay competitive in soccer and just played golf. But uh, <laughs> in the world of, of um, kids' competitive sports and then teenager competitive sports, it, it was true 15 years ago, and it's even more true now. If you're not all in as if you might go pro, you're not ultimately competitive. So, um, you know, I would, I was a single digit handicap, which if you're not scratch, you don't play, uh, especially in Florida, especially in Florida. And ultimately I'm, I'm happy about that, that I didn't try and pursue that more aggressively. Um, but I studied, uh, I was in a magnet program in our public high school in Sarasota studying advanced math and science. Um, and that helped me land a scholarship to school, an academic scholarship at SMU. So I was on this path to being an engineer. And when I went to SMU, um, none of the specific engineering disciplines really spoke to me. 
but there was this new uh, management, it's called uh, management science or engineering management, a degree that um, several schools had started to offer, which was basically a blend of business and engineering. I thought that was awesome. I was really interested in it. It's basically problem solving and really loved that until it came time to uh, apply for jobs and all of the engineering firms said, you're not a real engineer. And all of the finance and accounting firms said, you don't have nearly enough finance or accounting background. Uh, so what did I do? I became a consultant, uh, which is really funny if you think about it. Um, to help other people solve their problems um, is a, is a full-scale discipline. Uh, and ultimately, it was the right path. I loved the experience that I had. I, my first job out of school was a management consultant, and I was based in Dubai. Uh, I had my first, my first office was in uh, Dubai Media City in, in Dubai. I worked in um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. It was just absolutely extraordinary. We had 130 people from 30 different countries in that office, and it was during the global financial crisis. It was a fascinating time. Were you someone that traveled a lot as a kid, or were you guys moving around a bunch and then sort of settled, and once you were settled, or was travel a part of your experience as a kid? We traveled um, domestically a, a fair bit, nothing extensively. We weren't the type of family that you know drove across the country to the Grand Canyon, but visited family and, and took some, some trips growing up. I was very fortunate um, to have um, a good childhood and, and parents that were really engaged and, and took me places. I didn't travel extensively abroad. Um, I think my first time abroad was we did Italy and France, I believe, which was super eye-opening as a, I think I was 12 or 13. Um, it, it is something that the sooner you can get a child abroad, I think the better, um, just to see that people live differently. Even what was it like for you going from SMU and I'm sure like a university bubble like many universities to now going over to the Middle East and the places that you're going to are just very, very different? Yeah, so it's going to say that um, the experience of going abroad just is remarkably eye-opening as, as a child, as a teenager. Um, and so I think it's really important. But I got more and more interested in that as I was getting older. And, and my sister also went to SMU and studied for uh, studied abroad for a year which opened my eyes to that opportunity. So I actually studied abroad for a year as well. I went to England for a summer, Spain for the fall, winter, Southeast Asia for about a month, and then uh, I was in Australia for about six months. So I really started to get the travel bug. Um, and so when I, when I had my first job, I actually applied to the job in Dallas, and with the global financial crisis coming, they asked us, hey, does anybody, um, would you prefer to transfer to Dubai? So I raised my hand and um, was uh, one of about a dozen Americans hired to go to our Dubai office. Uh, and the, the quick side, side note there that was very funny is there's about 130 people from 30 different countries and then 10 or so Americans come in. We swung that ratio of Americans to, to non-Americans. Um, and I could, I could tell some of the Europeans were not necessarily thrilled by that, but I think we were okay. Um, but then while I was there, I went to a new country every month for a year, whether on assignment working or, or traveling. And when you're 22, 20, yeah, 22, 23, um, with a group, um, of your peers and you can go almost anywhere. It was amazing. We just looked at each other one weekend and realized, Hey, in a month we have a four day weekend because the way the holidays work there. So we just said, yeah, let's go to Lebanon. I uh, went to Beirut, um, and a bunch of our colleagues were from, from Beirut, and 
the thing I learned about going to Beirut or to Lebanon is you want someone there locally to be your host, to be your guide. And then the city and the country just opens up to you. It's a very, very friendly place, but you want um, a local uh, to be your guide, to be your friend. Um, and it was amazing. Lebanon was such an exceptional experience. And I use that as a juxtaposition because you asked about showing up in the Middle East. I had two thoughts when I went there because it was shortly after, I think it was two years after there was a major bombing campaign um, against Lebanon. I think Israel bombed, their, bombed the airport in Beirut. Um, and uh, that, that was a little scary for me to think about being, being over there. Um, now I know they're very, very different places in so many ways. And the second was being in Saudi Arabia, um, having watched the kingdom and just hearing all of the, the stories. Um, I thought as long as I don't get staffed in, in Saudi, I think I'll be okay. Uh, so of course I got staffed in Saudi Arabia. I spent three months there, uh, going back and forth from Dubai to Riyadh. And then, um, <laughs> the first night I was in, in, in the Middle East, I landed and my roommate, who was one of my coworkers, he knew a bunch of people and we were out and one of his friends was the desk chief for, um, for Reuters for Lebanon. And we were driving around. She said, oh, Kevin, I'm so excited you're here. You have to come to Lebanon sometime. You, you'll love it. The energy, the, it's just vibrant because you never know when shit's just going to start blowing <laughs> up. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm not sure that that's where I'm going to go. And then after living in Dubai for three months, I was like, man, I can't wait to get there. Um, everything just sort of normalizes. And um, being in, in, du in Riyadh for a number of months, you just get used to the bomb, bomb squads checking your cars everywhere you go. And it's just starts to become a hassle rather than a feeling of security. It's interesting because I haven't been to those places, but I've spent a lot of time in Israel and Israel has that same sort of intensity that you feel as soon as you get off the airplane, you feel an intensity, yep. but there's also a vibrancy to the country. It's kind of like, these aren't apples to apples by any means, but when you go to New York City, there's an energy, there's a pulse to New York City yeah. that is intoxicating. It is, you feel it and you feel yourself moving faster. You feel yourself just sort of going with that environment, which is, it's pretty wild to feel that um, from an emotional standpoint. Yeah. I wanna go back one step, just that time when you're applying for these engineering positions and they're saying, no, nah, you don't fit this box. Yeah. What was your reaction to that as a 21, 22 year old and sort of not necessarily going the path that you thought you were gonna go? I didn't necessarily assume I will go be an engineer. Um, and I have this, uh, one of the, I, I guess one of the gifts that my parents gave me was um, I just don't take no for an answer or I just immediately move to, well, that wasn't the right answer. Were you always like that? Yeah. So from a young age and you have siblings? I have an older sister. She um, like that? To an extent. I think we, we exhibit it in different ways. Um, I was the, <laughs> I was the kid that if I got a 89 on a math test, you know, I, I was always in competition with friends and, or if I got a 90, what, what's the difference between an A and an A plus, like a 96 to a 97, I would look through my entire test and then find the point where I felt like I could argue you didn't present the question fairly or, um, you know, here's why I got to this answer based on the methodology. Um, and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I found that as long as you're not um, hostile about it, uh, most of my teachers actually really loved it because... They told me once I graduated, they didn't say it um, along the way. They loved that I cared that much. And it wasn't just for a GPA. Arguing one point on one test isn't gonna have a material difference on, on your GPA, but it was the principle of the matter. And I just, I, I, had, to have, I had to have the answer. Um, 
and some of it was for the point and some of it was I genuinely felt like I knew how this problem was supposed to be solved. I did it this way. I didn't get the answer. Why? Uh, and so that same type of mentality applies in, in my case to, um, in my case to the job application process where if someone felt like, hey, you're not the right fit, I, I had one of two answers, press them hard on why I was and, and move forward. Um, but on others, you know, they would walk me through, you need to have taken these five classes in the last two semesters. I'm like, oh, well, move on. Just, it's not even sort of worth continuing the conversation. And I don't know how I modulated between those two because they're very different responses, you know, fight or just walk away because it's not worth the time. But finding that balance is why I think I've been able to kind of claw my way forward. I'm grinning because I think for me, I can go through like not making a high school team and being like, oh, they're lost, sucks to be them. And just like, I wasn't going to be the kid that was going to go to the coach and say, no, I want to play. And you know, yeah. what, what does it take? It's like, nope, F you, I'm out. And then I remember getting older. And as I started to get more failure, I taught myself at some point, even like I remember one specific failure where I didn't get into a certain program that I wanted to get into. And it was on my birthday and it was on Capitol Hill and we were out to dinner and I got the email rejection. And I remember everybody around me being like, oh, they're lost. And I'm like, no, not their loss. Like, let me go find out why. Mm -hmm. And the next week I basically emailed like every professor. Mm -hmm. I contacted the university. I did all this stuff. And then I reapplied and I got in. Yeah. And that was a big turning point for me where I was no longer just like, oh, they're lost and I'll show them. I still had a fight, right? right. Like, I still like, they're lost, I'm going to show them versus like, no, let me actually find out like why I didn't get in and learn from it and grow from it. And that I did not learn until later in life. That was not something yeah. I had when I was in high school. There were, p there were points where I think my parents demonstrated it to me directly and I picked it up. You know, I needed... Uh, I needed to take an econ class and the, the great professor, the great teacher that everybody wanted, the class was full and I got stuck with the one that no one wanted because he was a terrible teacher. He barely showed up. And I remember after two classes, he literally just gave us a US News and World Report and said, read it. This is your class today. Um, I just thought this is a waste of my time. I'm not going to learn anything. So I went down to the whatever, the guidance counselor, or the VP's office, whatever, of the school, and just said, I'm not learning anything. This is not a good use of my time. I know his class is full, but I, I please put me in the class. And oftentimes they said, oh, wow, okay. And and you learn through that over time. And, and based on my story so far, I, I skipped this point, but I'll just share. When I got offered to go to Dubai instead of working in Dallas because of the global financial crisis collapse, they emailed probably 90 or 100 of us and asked us, hey, what do you want to do? Um, would you be open to going to Dubai? Would you be open to applying for some fellowship or even deferring for a year and doing grad school? Um, and I thought, oh, Dubai, that's great. So I came up with this list of questions and I started Googling and I wanted more information to be able to make an informed decision. And I think 48 hours later, I emailed and said, yes, I would love to go to Dubai. And the coordinator, the recruiter said, oh, gosh, sorry, you know, we've already filled it. It's, we only had whatever it is, 10 spots. And I was crushed because I thought, how could I have been so stupid? This group, of course, people are immediately going to raise their hand and say, yes, there's no negotiating for this. There's no questions to answer. Um, and so I, I said, wow, OK. Um, and I, I kind of got off the phone and then I called her back and said, look, 
part of the reason I applied to is Oliver Wyman. Part of the reason I applied is because you do a lot of international work. Here's my international background. I really wanted to work internationally. I just went on and on and on. And she said, wow, okay, uh, let me check. And two hours later, she emailed me back and said, you're going to Dubai. So cool. I want to stay in your childhood for a minute and then I'll, we'll, we'll sort of get, get to where you are today and, and play around there. When I've interviewed entrepreneurs in the past and my dad's an entrepreneur and started a business, I often hear them talk about as kids being into business in some capacity and having that sort of entrepreneurial bug and just listening and reading and following people, listening to the, how I built this podcast. I mean, it's, it almost seems like they all have some story of some sort of entrepreneurial bug from a young age. Did you have that? If so, I'm curious what it was or what it looked like. And I uh, would love to hear more about that. Uh, I, I don't think that I can say that I had a specifically entrepreneurial bug, but I think the, the two things that were somewhat cultivated by my family and then also just my natural tendencies were tenacity, which you just heard me describe earlier, and um, intellectual curiosity. I was just interested in a lot of different things. I played a lot of different sports rather than wanting to play the one sport. I was okay not being the best in any of them because I really enjoyed all of them. And I liked being able to pick up a bat and play a game of baseball. I loved going, growing up in Florida, you just go to the beach and play a game of pickup beach volleyball. And I was not a great beach volleyball player, but I was good enough to hang and play. And I liked being able to do all those different things. Uh, and there's that book, um, it's out now, it's about being a generalist versus a specialist range. range. Um, I haven't read it yet. A lot of people have talked about it. And I think there are reasons for specialists and there are reasons for generalists. I don't, I, I will never be a specialist. And for some reason that was inherent in my traits very early on. Um, and so I think for me, it was more the, the tenacity, just not giving up and just being bullheaded enough to drive through and get whatever answer I wanted. Um, which as you can imagine, my family loved in some respects and really hated in others. Um, and then, uh, that intellectual curiosity was cultivated early on. How did being a generalist help you or hinder you as a consultant? As a consultant, it was great because you just move from one project to the next and you need to know a lot of different things. Um, you need to also um, not lie, but uh, make your way through conversations. Uh, I, I can't even tell you the number of times I had conversations with people who were experts in their field. And I just had to make sure that they didn't know. I didn't know a darn thing about what they were talking about and then go look it up later because I was curious enough to catch up to speed enough to have a helpful conversation. Um, but you, after three months, you might be assigned to a new project. And so it's time to move on. And however much time you just spent in utilities, you know, United States utilities, now you're going to move on and you're going to be talking with, um, the consortium, um, Boeing and Lockheed joined together to do a consortium to, to, um, a United Launch Alliance, ULA. Um, I, I was tasked to help on one of our partners on a proposal. So I had to spend like six weeks learning everything about what it takes to get something into space. But I'd imagine also that curiosity and tenacity helped you when you were in conversations with people because you could ask them questions and you could pick things up quickly yeah. and then you could figure out how to connect dots Absolutely. to at least be in the conversation and, yeah. and hold your own in that in that environment. Yeah. And also be really okay being the dumbest person in the room. Yeah. Because 
it's okay that I don't know as much as that person, but I'm really curious and I want to learn and then I want to help them connect dots that they might not have seen otherwise. Um, but it, look, also that that's a part of the reason I ended up leaving consulting because after about two years, I just didn't feel connected to any actual result or accomplishment. I know that we did good work, but then you move on and you don't actually see the success of what you're doing. Uh, and so that's why I ended up moving on to my next role. What was next? I ended up working for the Hunt family in Texas, um, Hunt Consolidated, one of the largest private energy companies um, in the world. And really just, it, it was a learning experience for me on how to build a company with integrity and do it the right way, treat people um, with respect and build um, build a company that, that can last. So they had an annual meeting every year with all, I don't know, there were thousands of employees, but um, locally there would be maybe 800 employees or so. And um, they wouldn't recognize you on stage for your years of service until 25. And then they only did every five years because there were people that had been there that long and it would take too long to do anything earlier or every year. Why were people so loyal to that company? Because Ray, is the um, he's been the CEO for a long time and now Hunter and Chris, his son and son-in-law, are co-CEOs. They treat people with integrity. They do business with integrity. They respect uh, the laws, the rules, the environment, the, all of those things that um, when you do good work and you treat people well, people want to stay. They might be able to go make more money elsewhere or some people like myself, I wanted to go start my own business. That's why I left. Um, but it's a great place to grow a career and build a family and be a part of something. What, for you, what's the decision, decision to leave? Because you're not saying that, hey, I was on this path to become an entrepreneur. Or it wasn't like I started things in college or yeah. like I didn't hear that story. You've got, it sounds like security. You're working for people that you respect. It sounds like there's a mission. It's giving you the things that you weren't necessarily getting in consulting. Why scratch that itch to take that take that leap, which is is scary. I knew it was an amazing organization, but I think at the time I was 25 or so because I did two years of consulting and then about two years with Hunt. Um, that's about right. Um, I did not want to just stay doing the same thing for the next 20 years. I was I wanted to go try and experiment. This is my intellectual curiosity. Sometimes it's really beneficial and sometimes it's like ADD where I can't stay focused on one thing. I really wanted to go build something. I didn't know what that was. And that when I was 22, I didn't have this, like, I want to go build something. But over time, being a part of so many different things, seeing what's working, what isn't working, what makes a company successful, and what doesn't make a company successful, I knew I wanted to build something. And I had this idea that had been uh, looming for years, which was this, what is now Mizzen in Maine, performance fabric dress shirt. Um, and so I said, you know, I don't know how many great ideas I'll have. I think this could be a great idea. I need to give this a shot. So um, I spent about a year just tinkering, Googling, experimenting, you know, ordering some fabric to my house and playing around with it. It wasn't like I was, you know, going to trade shows and doing sales calls. And I was just trying to figure it out. And then once I figured out, once I had the product and knew I am actually, I'm, I'm going to go start a company. This idea I'd had for a long time, could it even work? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Would anyone believe that it was a normal dress shirt? Once I answered that question, and I'm sure we'll dig in a little bit further, but once I answered that, that's when I went and talked to the team at Hunt and said, I'm going to go start my own company. 
And they actually remarkably said, oh, wow, okay, we're really happy for you. When do you need to leave as opposed to walk out the door right now? Part of it, again, is the integrity and in doing the right thing. The other part, I think, is they were in such shock that I was going to go start an apparel company and not go start an oil field services company or some investment group. I wasn't competitive, um, and uh, I'd also made myself fairly useful for the team. They still needed some of the work that I was doing. So it sounds like, though, I would imagine you're at these uh, conferences where they're honoring the people at their company. I'm imagining as you're sitting there, you're looking at those people being honored for 25 years and being like, oh, good for you, but you don't see yourself on that stage? I didn't I didn't see myself on that stage, no. And then what did you see? Like, I'd be curious to just get a sense of your vision at that age um, because naivete is is one of the beautiful things about youth. I've worked yeah. with companies and they'll say, oh, we're really young. Or I've worked with sports teams. They'll say, oh, we're, we have a bunch of freshmen. I'm like, oh, cool. Let's leverage it because right. there's an unfair advantage in there if we choose to see it that way. Yeah. And we can choose not to and complain about how there are all the bad things that come with inexperience. But I would imagine you're sitting there and also having a vision. What was the vision as you sat there as a 25-year-old the day that you're, you're sort of have your mind set on like, I'm going to, I have to leave and pursue, pursue this. I don't think I, uh, I don't think I had one clear vision and this, uh, I think comes back to the sense of intellectual curiosity. I think I had more of a vision of the possibility in, I just should go try this because if I'm wrong, I will learn more than I possibly could hear. Uh, and again, it was not a knock at, at, on Hunt at all, but until you go do it yourself, for me, until I went and did it myself, I wouldn't really know what I was capable of. And if it failed catastrophically, I didn't have kids. I wasn't yet married. Um, I just had to pursue, I was engaged, but I had to pursue what I felt was my path to trying to build something. And I do remember thinking, if after six months or 12 months or 18 months, it fails miserably, I know from all the mentors I've talked to and everything I've read, I will be a significantly more valuable employee, either to hunt again or to anyone else, because I'll know what it's like to sign the other side of the paycheck. I'll know what it's like to make the decision to put everything I have on the line. Um, and I, I, for, for any entrepreneurs out there, for any self-employed business people, you know, I mean, if it's your money, if it's your your livelihood, it's just different. And so when, when you are responsible for those decisions, I didn't really understand it until I did it. I just knew I would be more valuable if I went and took that risk. Um, and one thing that I've talked to other entrepreneurs about or, or people who want to, it's really important that you understand your risk profile. I didn't have kids. I was very fortunate to have had um, my a scholarship to school, so I didn't have any debt. Getting those ducks in a row is really important to ensuring that you can make the right decisions. If, you, if in two months you can't pay any of your bills and your kids' you know, healthcare is on the line, you're not gonna be able to focus and make sure that you're actually building a business. So, um, while I encourage people, just go try, just go start, just do something, there's ways that you can stage that appropriately without actually jeopardizing your family or your health. It's interesting. I do a uh, assessment profile for leaders, and one of the things they look at are values, and they put security as a value. And what I often find is people that score low on that, like they, 
don't care much about security, it's usually because they have some security. So because they have the security, they don't feel like they need to value it as much, which is just an interesting dynamic. And I would imagine for entrepreneurs, security plays a big role there. If you are, to your point, 40 years old, have three kids, are, you know, thinking about them going to school, whatever it might be, you have a mortgage, like what you have to do then is different than maybe at 25 or there's a lot of other factors that go into the idea of security and how you think about it. Yeah, and that I think is is one of the things people can have all sorts of opinions about Elon Musk and they do. Um, and he, I don't I don't hold him up in, in the way that, that necessarily all entrepreneurs do. The most amazing thing that Elon has done, besides the fact that he's in such disparate industries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is after having made, what is it, $150 million, he put $100 million, $110 million into Tesla, like 30 or 40 into SpaceX and 10 into SolarCity. He put everything he had made. How many people who took home $150 million would put all of it back on the line? No private wealth person is going to choose to do that either. Correct. Uh, and, and look, you know, maybe it's appearing to be the right thing for him to have done. But um, for, for me, it's the once you also understand what you are capable of building, it's less scary to do it again. Um, I've, I've heard some from some very successful entrepreneurs who continued to take big risks. It's like, I'll just do it again, right? I, it's not that hard. If you know how to make a lot of money, losing money isn't that scary. But if you are literally managing, like paying for your kids' healthcare, you're just, you have to make sure that you have some measure of safety net to ensure that you can provide for your family. So that's a big change. You mentioned mentors and books and people sort of supporting you. Who was saying, Kevin, this is stupid, bad idea, don't do it? I'm sure there were dissenters. Not anyone that was really close to me. So it was just, people in your circle were all supportive. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, people in my circle were supportive. I think, again, coming back to I was 25, 26, and it was a pretty cool idea. It's turned out to work, but um, it was the people in the industry that I spoke to that universally told me how bad of an idea it was. No one that I spoke to in the industry thought it was a good idea. We're going to get into more about what you're doing now, but I'm just curious to ask that same question. When you decided to take this leap? Were there dissenters in your inner circle or was everybody supportive again for you doing to take that? the leap from Mizzen and Maine to, to stand together? Yeah. Um, not, I, I can't think of any that said it was a bad idea. I can think of plenty of those conversations where it was very heartbreaking to have that conversation with my, my team and my friends. And, um, I, I think, there's probably also some level of like I'd earn the right for people to trust the decisions that I've made, which as we all know, success is a very bad teacher. If you make, if things are going well, you're not actually necessarily learning anything. Um, but there was an extraordinary amount of thought that went into the decision. Um, and we'll talk more about this. It sounds like in a little bit, but I felt very strongly that it was in my best interest, my family's best interest, my investor's best interest, my team's best interest to do this. Um, we'll, again, we'll talk more about it, but if I hadn't gone through that exercise, and I talked at length with my parents about it and my wife, um, I was actually, um, 
I, I don't think I've told my parents how grateful I am for it. I thought they were going to tell me, don't do it. I was pretty sure they were going to say, don't. But they were really supportive. Um, and that was a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought I was going to have to convince them. Why? Why do you think your thought was different than the reality of it? So um, I proposed to my wife after uh, we'd been together for six months, which meant I talked to my parents about it after about three months. I decided I was going to buy a house and I went and bought a house. Um, and it, I've done things somewhat. I make a decision. I go do it. Got, got more than head and analysis. Yeah, and I would I would argue that I did a lot of analysis on proposing to my wife, and I was right. Um, but you do like spurt analysis. It's kind of like the forty eight hours going to Dubai. It's like, all right, what's this? Boom, 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 boom. Okay, it checks the boxes. Now yeah. let's go. Yes, and so I I expected them to say something along the lines of, "Hey, I know it feels like you've been doing Mizzen and Maine forever, but just settle down, just like stick to one thing, just get it done." And then you can talk about what's next. But based on the conversations that we were having and how I, I didn't present my case like I was presenting to a judge that I have to make sure that they just hear it my way. It was, here's what, here's what I'm thinking. And um, they said, you know, it sounds like a, a really well thought out uh, response and, or, or approach. And we think it's actually, we think it's a great idea. We know it's going to be really hard, but we think it's a great idea. All right, let's go back to Ms. and Maine. So you got this clothing idea, you, you fire it up, you're starting it. I'm curious to know what it's like going from, and this is some of what we were talking about before we fired up the mics, what it's like going from being a consultant to an employee to a boss. Um, like go back to those first couple of hires and now you're leading. Cause were you leading a team at Hunt? No, you no. Were, you were I'd not. never even interviewed somebody. Yeah, so what? how do you even know? I'd never what, even watched someone interview somebody other than me. How do you even know what the hell you're doing? <laughs> you don't. You don't. Like, <laughs> what did you learn going through that process? Oh, what, what are like the big takeaways? Because So many painful lessons. Yeah, I would imagine you screwed up a lot. <sighs> Hiring people does not make you a boss. It marginally makes you a manager. Uh... And even there, not even really like people, you're just technically managing people, but that doesn't mean that you are. Um, so many lessons. I, I'll just spout off random things. You can't be a good manager until you've done, done it for a while and you learn what it means to be a bad manager. Um, <laughs> Did you have bad managers before when you were working? Sort of. Did you I have didn't, good managers? I had one or two really great managers. I didn't really, because of the way that I worked in consulting and investment analysis, it's never like I was on a team and I had a manager and I reported to them every day. I never really had that for better or for worse. So I can't say that like I saw what it's like to be a bad manager. I had some people that I kind of reported to in some capacity that I'm like, I do not have a great relationship with you, but it wasn't ever, you're a bad manager. Um, so for me, the, the bad management was, I just, I think my biggest failures in management have been not addressing problems, not um, being candid enough, like, not sorry, being clear enough. Like confronting problems? Yeah. Like confrontation? Yeah. Are, um, you, are you someone who wants to be well-liked? Is likability important for you? Or was it back then? It's an odd balance where I don't really care what people think, but I do... 
I, I care very much about being empathetic and being kind. Yeah, you're not a jerk. You're not an asshole. Yeah, I'm sure plenty of people that I fired would say that I, I was. I'm confident I'm not. And based on all of the people that I've worked with, that it's gone well. Um, the And look, I say flippantly, people I fired, people that things went sideways with and just I couldn't have them be a part of our organization anymore. Um, but you learned how to confront that, whereas in the beginning, maybe you'd let people stay on for too long. Oh, yeah, I definitely let people stay on too long. And, um, you know, not that this is the only mark of being a jerk or a bad manager, but I've never yelled at anybody. Um, I've never insulted anybody that I've worked with. Um, and the, the biggest lessons for me really were in not identifying and correcting problems early enough. And what I found was over time, I definitely got better at it. But in building an organization, I felt this sense of debt and gratitude to everyone that was there, that they would be on this crazy journey with me, that I couldn't I couldn't give bad news and I couldn't push them or I would just kind of gloss some things over. And um, over time, reading a lot and talking with other mentors and having things go really badly, you start to realize, and I said it aloud and I encouraged the people that manage people beneath me to say the same thing, which is, if I care about you, I will give you feedback because I care that you will get better and you will learn from these things. If I don't care about you, I don't really care what happens to you. And so I don't care if I give you feedback. Now, that's the ideal. It's just hard to have hard conversations. And people that are really good at that, I think, are some of the best managers. And it's not that they're hard on people all the time. It's that they confront the challenges that need to be confronted. There's a basketball general manager. First of all, what you're talking about, it sounds like a lot of sports head coaches. Hey, if I'm giving you feedback, it's because I believe in you or I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And I think this information will help you get to where you want to go. And then there's a general manager of a pro pro sports team who said, we want to value confrontation. I think confrontation is a word that we think of as yelling, uh, uh, demeaning people, uh, getting in their face. But a great culture will you will have confrontation from the highest person to the lowest person because you need to confront ideas and you need to have those challenging conversations. And I would say my executive coaching practice, that is one of the massive things that we talk about is how do you confront with dignity? How do you confront with descriptions rather than evaluations? It's a, it's a level of communication. And by the way, it's any relationship, our, our spouse, our children, you've got kids, I've got kids. Like how do I confront my kid when they're not doing things right? Right. Someone teach me. It's still really hard. I'm, I'm really doing my hard. best. Yeah. But it's it, it's a really valuable skill to be able to learn how to confront people without them taking it personally or them losing their self-esteem in any way. And something that I've learned more having been engaged now um, with market-based management, which is the management philosophy that governs Coke and here at Stand Together, addressing people's performance shortcomings, which isn't necessarily a failure, shortcomings, or misalignments to the role, you are honoring that person's life and their their abilities by acknowledging it's not the right fit. We so often feel like if we give someone bad performance review that we are dishonoring them or doing them a disservice because we're not like, we haven't made them successful. It's a huge, huge part of a, 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 it's very much an ego thing as well, but what I have seen are the conversations where it's, this is not the right role for you, or this is not the right organization for you. And you are going to be happier 
in another organization. It might not feel like it today. And sometimes people take it really badly. And then it's definitely not the right organization. But you will end up flourishing in another organization to a much greater degree. Whether we're too hard on you or our expectations are too high or the needs of our organization just don't align with how you can create value. If you go somewhere where you can create value and all those things are aligned, you will self-actualize in a way that you can't even imagine relative to here. I want to ask this question and it might not be crisp and clear because I don't think I've ever asked it before. If you went to work for Ms. and Maine as, let's just take the, when you went and worked for Hunt, so you're now 23 or 24, however old you were, and you go to work for Hunt, and you had gone to Miz and Maine. Do you think that you would have stayed there, or do you think that you were somebody who always needed to work for themselves? And I'm just curious, because for me, I was very clear. I wanted to work for myself, and I'm not sure there ever would have been a, a place for me if I didn't have that feeling that I was working for myself. Um, I'm curious for you if that was if that was part of it as well. I don't think that was the specific drive. I wanted to build something. And so if I felt like I was a core part of the building team in the early days and was instrumental to creating something from nothing or building something of value, I think that would have sufficed. And now I'm a part of a 1,000-person organization True. building a number of, of different things. Um, and I... I didn't know if I would ever be able to quote unquote work for someone else, but that comes to similar to the discussion we were just having alignment of values and skill set and, and, and to where, um, Brian hooks is our CEO here. He is uh, one of the most exceptional leaders I've ever worked for. Um, and I don't feel like I work for Brian. I feel like I've been, Brian's asked me to go build a number of new things here and I get to work with Brian to build something of significance. Um, if I felt like I was showing up to work for somebody and they were just giving me my marching orders, I don't think I would do that again. Uh, and I, having experienced building something myself and now experienced what I'm building here, um, that's where I think my inner drive aligns with the opportunities that I've pursued. Yeah, and as I'm hearing it from you, I think that's probably more connected to what I'm talking about is the autonomy to make your own decisions and to do your own thing, which it sounds like you, you currently have as well. I also, in, in talking to you and you brought it up before we fired up the mics, you've worked with executive coaches, you've, you're in a forum. So talk about as you're building this thing, I'm sure there's a ton of pain that's also going on. Um, what, why did you get help? Why did you, um, what led to you getting those mentors or coaches or people along the way that helped you build the company to what you wanted it to be? So the first form of quote unquote help was I joined EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, in 2015, 16? I can't even remember now. I think 2016. Um, yeah, it was 2016. Um, and joined a forum. And that group, there's eight of us um, has been one of the most instrumental experiences of my life. And those, those group of guys are some of the most important people I could ever imagine having come across. And the unique thing about that experience is I don't think we ever would have even met had it not been for Forum. Ultimately, after a year of being in EO, we all dropped out of EO and stayed together as a Forum. EO serves a great purpose for a lot of people. It just wasn't the right fit for what we wanted. And um, so we 
have stayed together and prior to moving here to DC in almost four years, I missed one forum. Tell people a little bit if they're unfamiliar with what EO does and there's other forum, YPO, all these other organizations that do forums. Just walk them through what that what that means. Yeah, so EO is Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a worldwide organization of entrepreneurs. You have to be the founder, the leader of the business. YPO is a, is a different version of that. You have to be the president or that level of an organization over a certain revenue size. But the forum structure is a highly confidential group of could be five, six, seven, eight, twelve people. Um, ours is eight, which I feel like is a good sweet spot, where you set your own rules. There's no magic sauce to how a forum works, but how ours works is every month we would meet for four to five hours and then go to dinner together. And during those four to five hours, we set up rules to where if you miss a meeting, it's a hundred bucks. If you are five seconds late to the meeting, it's 50 bucks. If your phone goes off in the meeting, it's 50 bucks. Um, and in those early days, it mattered because you needed to set those norms to where people would respect the process. But we put our phones on airplane mode, we put them in a bag, and we are all in for that time. After a while, you know each other so well that they loosen a little bit and you gotta, you gotta tighten it back up. But what makes the forum experience unique is there are things that your friends who haven't started a business just can't possibly understand. There are things that your spouse just can't understand, or you may just not want to load them down with that, or it may just be a tough conversation to have. There are things that your friends or your family or your coworkers or your co-founders, you just don't want to have those conversations. And so it is a space in which with a 100% confidentiality commitment, you can explore anything. And, um, without going too deep in these things, one of the things that they talk about is explore your Jahari window, where it's basically things you don't know about yourself and you don't see about yourself that are true to who you are. And only through exploring yourself and other people helping you on that journey, can you really understand like, oh man, maybe I just never saw things that way. So, so through that process um, and through, the, through this commitment to the forum integrity, we would go on a trip once a year together. You build this bond that, and there are plenty of forums where they just get together for lunch, they talk for two hours, they share some business challenges and they move on. And then there are some forums that become literal life changing, a core part of your existence and being. The forum experience I credit to being, I, I don't wanna say they you know, saved my life. I think in many ways they've made my life as rich as it is exposing me to things that I wouldn't have been exposed to. Um, I, I've written, I wrote a post a couple years ago that um, the things that I, I trained gratitude in 2017, Memento Mori, uh, Daily Planner, uh, the Five Minute Journal, um, this, this post, uh, Your Life in Weeks, all of these things are things that we explored together and didn't just like, hey, read this. We talked about it and how do we put it into practice and what did we learn from it? And it literally reprogrammed how I look at the world. And through building a business, I needed that. Um, I, um, I I can't even describe how how transformational that group has been. And then the the other question you asked in terms of um, uh, you asked about executive coaching. Executive coaching, yeah. Um, I I don't want to say. Uh, I realized, oh my God, I have to get an executive coach. I started to realize it. And I think I just seen enough. I had seen enough people that talked about how, how great a, an executive coach is. Um, and you certainly well know it being an executive coach yourself. 
it's similar to the idea of a forum where there's just a place and time to have a certain set of conversations that you don't have anywhere else. And I don't want to, I don't want to mischaracterize. It's not like a therapy session for some people. Sometimes it is, but it's a way to work through and drive progress on yourself and your family and your business and all of those things. And so I, I got introduced to an executive coach who took me through a Hogan assessment and there's, I don't know, thousands of tools out there. <laughs> that was the one I was thinking of earlier when I talked about security as a value. Yes. So Hogan, yes. I, I highly recommend. Yeah. So, so she gave me the Hogan assessment. There's about a thousand questions in the assessment. S three assessments in one. Yes. Uh, it was robust. And um, it was amazing to go through this process with her. She's become someone that's really important to me. And, and though I don't still work with her, we still talk from time to time. Um, she came to Dallas. I'd already taken the test. She sat there. The results were in front of her. And we, we talked for about 45 minutes. And she just smiled at the end of it and said, sometimes it's just amazing to see results come to life in front of me. And I'd read all of this information about you. I talked to your board. I talked to some people. And your profile is spot on. And then she said something to me that is part of the reason that I'm sitting here today. As we worked through some results of the test, she said, Everything about your profile is why Mizzen and Maine has been as successful as it's been and why you have just made it happen to get it to this point. And I really hope you hear me on this next part. Nothing about your profile is why this company will be successful in the years ahead. It doesn't mean that you can't be the leader to drive it to be successful, but you don't think it can fail and it likely will. And so you need to make some substantial changes to how you think about setting up your company for success moving forward. The good news is I had just walked her through a bunch of changes that I'd been putting in place over the past three months. And she goes, if you hadn't told me about those, I would be close to full-blown panic mode. Just some like very structured processes around goal setting and budgeting and, and things in a, in a transformational way for a hyper-growth business. Um, and so for her, it was driving to how do I set up my team around me to supplement, as we were talking before we hit play, uh, record, to supplement the areas where I am not the expert and I should not be the person responsible for success. What was the biggest one of those? What was the one thing that it, it wasn't going to happen? Was there like one piece of that puzzle that you needed? Well, ultimately what I was driving to before this opportunity came along was I was starting to go down the process of hiring a president where there are companies that are really successful at finding that balance of CEO and president where I'm going to go sign the next celebrity endorsement deal and I'm going to go bring in the next big sales fish and then I'm going to help the team with the brand and then I'm going to help craft like the strategy of how we think about our product defining who we are as a, as a brand but not figure out, do we order 7,000 units of this thing in, in March or do we order 9,000 in February? Um, and so we were still small enough to where I felt like it, was, it would have been too confusing to have a president and a CEO. So that big driver for me was a head of product where I needed to wake up every day and not think about where our product, uh, you know, where the fibers were being made or what was happening from this perspective or that perspective where I was still deeply involved in components of that. And my, my kind of right hand, my COO, um, who's become a best friend and like a family member to me, 
I just sort of said, I need you to do this. And we were figuring it out together, which was not setting either one of us up for success. So it was helping put him in a position where he could drive more operational um, oversight and success without having to be an expert in fibers and fabrics and patterns. And uh, basically a chief merchant was what we were looking for. So, so we hired a chief merchant. Um, and then we got to this point down the road where I was like, okay, maybe it's time to start exploring that president opportunity. And, um, and then I got asked to come do this role. So I could either go try and find the president or I could go try and find the next CEO. It's really interesting. I was going over the Hogan yesterday with a director of sales and the person had like 97th. Oh no, actually it was the co-founder. The co-founder had like 97th percentile for altruism. Wow. And you know, they are in hyper growth. Uh, they raised, I think, their Series A. Like, <laughs> they are moving. And it's it's just fascinating because I yep. said to him, I go, all right, I also work with a nonprofit. And the nonprofit, I did the Hogan with seven of their executive team, and they all scored high for altruism. But that makes complete sense. Yep. Um, I'm curious for you, what was the draw to shift um, your, you know, your family? What was the draw to shift careers. Um, and I'm just using altruism as an example. I'm, I'm curious if altruism was a big piece of the puzzle for you. I don't even remember what I scored on, yeah, on we, the we, altruism scale. Yeah. I will share from the Hogan assessment experience, two of the mo more humorous um, components uh, from it that I remember is on prudence from a scale of zero to 100. I was a six. I might have even been a four. But the good news is, and I, I'm not making this up, our CFO was a 96. Yeah. I think I was a four and she was a 96. So there we go. We got 100. Um, but on colorful, mischievous, those types of things, and I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a lawbreaker, <laughs> uh, but on colorful, mischievous, the things it takes to really knock down walls and build a brand and, and, and create a movement, I was in the high 90s. Um, and so that... It, that didn't change my perspective to say, oh, wow, I should go work for a nonprofit. Um, for me, coming here to stand together, I became a donor partner to this organization back in 2017. I went to my first event and I felt like I found a home um, from with respect to ideals and ideology, which is around individual liberty. Institutions have their place to play in society, but we believe that everyone has extraordinary potential. It's not we just need to help people. It's we need to help people rise and be able to get to that point where knocking down barriers that are holding people back, people can unleash their true potential. That's that's a big driver for us, that we believe in bottom-up solutions rather than top-down, right? You're not going to solve homelessness in this country by issuing a mandate from D.C. You're going to solve homelessness in different ways in different cities, working with social entrepreneurs, tackling those problems on the ground. Um, and then... We work with anyone to do right and no one to do wrong. So criminal justice is a great example that was part of the reason I came to this organization. Um, that in 2018, we worked, uh, our organization Stand Together worked with Van Jones and worked with um, Jared Kushner. And that's a very strange kind of triad of people pushing for criminal justice on its face. But at the end of the day, we, we shared a common belief that the criminal justice system in this country is broken um, and that it needs to be reformed. And so 
our organization really partnered with um, a number of other organizations and it's a long story and I don't have all of the details that I can share in this in this moment because that will take forever. Um, but the First Step Act passed in, in 2018 with 87 votes affirmative, I believe, which I don't think you could get the Senate to pass, you know, that today is Friday when we're having this conversation just because of how partisan things are. But it's because we're able to work together to bridge divides and bring people together on common ground. Now, we might stand in opposition to some of those folks we worked with on this on another issue, but that's okay. And we can disagree there, but when we work together to do extraordinary things. So I, I immediately hopped into some of the, the kind of foundational beliefs, but it, it explains why I felt so passionately about this group. And so I, I came to our events and I supported a number of the nonprofits that we support. Um, and the more time I spent, the more I just realized this is an organization that's grounded in first principles. Um, and we feel why we feel passionately about immigration is why we feel passionately about criminal justice is why we feel passionately about free expression as economic opportunity and licensure and all of these issues have a very common thread. So um, the more I got engaged, the more excited I was, the more involved I got. And then um, Brian, our CEO, and Chase Coke, um, who's the founder of Coke Disruptive Technologies and a key part of Coke Industries, um, asked if I wanted to go to dinner uh, late last year and said, you know, we, we love, love your enthusiasm for this group and, and what you've built at Mizzen in Maine, and we'd love for you to come help us build a number of things here at Stand Together. And uh, I think I was mid-drink and just finished it all the way because as we were talking before we started, we'd been in the house that we just renovated. It took us like six months to renovate a house. We'd been in there six weeks. And um, I, uh, my wife was uh, due in two weeks. I was just about to start a fundraise for our company to, to take it to the next level. But they, they issued that challenge to me to say, how can you, how can you come help us build for the future? And I couldn't, I couldn't even sort of think about saying no. I, I mean, I thought a lot about it and I was very tactical in, in what was best for our family and our organization because I'd made a lot of commitments to our investors. But coming full circle to the executive coach, I was, I was okay and at peace with, there's someone who can take this organization to the next level while still adhering to and being committed to the values and the vision of Mizzen and Maine. And I was ready to embrace a next phase of leadership and bringing on a president and finding that right balance. And I was, I was going to, it's not about control, but I was going to relinquish control in some capacity anyway, to rely on somebody that could help take us to the next level. And so just um, embrace that challenge. And um, we brought in a recruiting firm and we hired, we extended an offer in, within about eight weeks of bringing on a recruiting firm, which is lightning speed for, uh, to replace a CEO founder. Politics. I grew up here, uh, well, we talked about this earlier. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin was talking about growing up in, or, or people that grew up in Dallas. and, and Who actually live about 45 minutes outside of Dallas. Yeah, and yes. now I know that Dallas isn't actually where you're from. Or Where do you claim? What do you claim? Florida? All over. You're yeah, all over. all over. But anyway, like growing up around here, and it would, probably would have been different if I grew up on Capitol Hill, but growing up in the suburbs of D.C., on politics, like, yeah, of course, we were talking about it at the dinner table and kind of normal, but... I have one friend from my childhood who went into politics. Uh, you know, my friends, we don't, you know, it comes up now because I feel like it just comes up everywhere now. But it wasn't a big thing. When, for you, did you become interested in, in what was going on in D.C.? 
so the uh, time of my life when I came up with the idea for Mizzen in Maine was actually doing a political internship here in DC. It always just interested me. Um, doing that internship taught me I never wanted to work in politics. Uh, it's a, it's just not, I don't like politics. What interests me is the policy and the kind of governance of setting up society to enable more people to flourish. What are the conditions in which societies and, and individuals can flourish? And the good news is we have a couple thousand years of history of the principles and the precedents that set societies up to flourish. And when societies turn away from openness and when they turn more to top-down solutions, they're either less likely to flourish and succeed or they can even go backwards, right? If you think um, in the, I don't know, is it around 1100, 1200 or so when China shut off uh, the world, basically, uh, China was really going to be the dominant world power. And they said, um, no more ships, no more shipping, no more international trade. And they really turned inward for a number, uh, I think a couple of centuries. Um, these principles find themselves repeating throughout history in varying ways, which are very instructive. Um, and so I, I, when I came to my first summit, what really interested me was we were focused as an organization, and, and there's a, a number of organizations that are all loosely affiliated in, in the Stand Together community. Um, the, the Stand Together community was interested in what are the things that drive um, human flourishing? And so what I found was there's a common thread, as I mentioned earlier, across these issues, criminal justice and immigration and uh, free expression, that without the right kind of uh, without the right conditions in place or the wrong barriers in place, um, it can really hold people back. Uh, and, and I'll just give an example that, that I heard at, at one of the summits I went to. There's a woman in Mississippi who our organization partnered with who wanted to open um, a hair braiding studio. And in order to do so, and by the way, she'd been doing this for uh, you know her whole life with her family. In order for her to be allowed to open this, and I might not get all of the exact details correct, it was like a thousand hours of certified training from state licensed trainers to be allowed to do business. Now, if you want to talk about economic mobility and economic opportunity, that's insane. To braid hair, the state tells you whether or not you're allowed to do that. It's not even, there's no blades involved, even that I, I feel a little bit differently, but even so, there's no blades involved, there's no chemicals, just braiding hair. She'd been fighting this for a long time. And um, one of the groups affiliated with, with Stand Together, it's called Americans for Prosperity, they partnered with her and fought really hard at the legislative level. And that's, a, that's policy, that's not politics, that's fixing bad policy. And ultimately it got reduced to something like 100 hours, which is still absurd, but it's much more achievable for, for entrepreneurs to say, you know what, I wanna make a little extra money for my family or this is how I'm gonna provide for my family rather than having to get permission from the state to be allowed to do something as simple as hair braiding. Kevin, why, why is this for you though? Like why, why not, you know, okay, I started Ms. Maine, now I'm chairman of the board, now I'm gonna go start a shaving company, whatever. Like why step into this nonprofit space and and look you know like coke industries there is a political like undertone that that is involved there and you're talking about the senate and you're talking about politics so like why not um 
why, 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 like for you here? I'm because I'm, I'm hearing all the great things. I get it, but why you? Like, why, why is this? A, it sounds like a mission for you. Like, what, why? Um, I've been extremely fortunate. I had great parents. I had an amazing upbringing. I had the opportunity to go to a great school. I was uh, in a secure enough position to be able to try to start a company. And that's just not true for most people in this country. It's not true at all. Um, and we like to think that the United States is a meritocracy where you pull yourself up from your bootstraps or buy your bootstraps and anything's possible. I think it's more possible here than anywhere else in the world. But there are structural barriers that hold people back that are inexcusable. Um, that we like to think that this is the land of opportunity, but because of often well-intentioned policies or um, ideas that people have to help, it ends up hurting. It ends up hurting individuals' opportunity to provide for their family, and. I feel really passionately that I can play a role in helping address some of these challenges. And I believe to my core in the fundamental principles of how we operate. Again, everyone has extraordinary potential. And there are a lot of nonprofits out there that they feel like they have the prescription, I will just help this person rather than help them rise, address some of the barriers or address just some of the symptoms. Um, again, coming back to the principles that bottom-up solutions are best. A look at a group like the Phoenix, um, that their um, relapse rate is, is twice as good as the, the leading addiction uh, recovery center here in the US. By bringing people together and embracing their sobriety and building a sense of purpose and power and community that uh, Stand Together has helped this group scale from uh, seven or eight locations to I think nearly 50 locations in 18 months helping thousands of people directly. And we connect the work that we're doing to communities and donors, and we hope that we can change people's mindsets to, you're not going to solve addiction with a national mandate. You're gonna solve addiction on the ground in communities working hand in hand with social entrepreneurs. And then working with anyone. I mean, I, we are a, an organization that has brought together broad coalitions to solve some of these challenges, and we wanna help scale that. All of those things, there's nothing in there that I don't just embrace to my core. Yeah, you're excited just chatting about it. Yeah, and, and look, I, I am in a unique position that I, because of the unique privileges that I've had growing up, how fortunate I am in, in, in so many ways, that I don't feel an obligation that I have to. I feel a, a privilege or an opportunity that I get to. Uh, and I, I'd also say, you know, I think uh, it, it's a... It's a unique opportunity to be able to invest back into uh, the society and the communities that helped me and my family get to this point. Um, so it, it's it's all of those things wrapped up. And also when we think about um, market-based management, I, I mentioned earlier is the uh, is the the philosophy that governs how how Coke operates and, and stand together. We think a lot about unique abilities and comparative advantages. And we talked about, you know, some organizations might not be the right fit. My skill set, I feel like I have a unique opportunity to drive value creation for society and for this organization and our partners um, that it's tremendously fulfilling to, to be able to do so. This, I don't feel like, well, this is my time to serve, so I'm going to go do this. I am fulfilled and self-actualized in a way that, um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm really passionate about. It's really cool. Uh, we'll start to wind down, but... 
I had a moment where I heard, I forget which, I think it might have been Charles Koch speaking on on Tim Ferriss's podcast. And it was this, it was like back-to-back days where he went on Tim Ferriss's podcast. And the next day, Bernie Sanders was on Joe Rogan's podcast. And, you know, regardless of where you are politically, it was interesting to have the opportunity to hear both those people speak their mind um, in an open forum, in a podcast forum. And both Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, for those that aren't familiar, it's long form, you know, hour hours. and a half, two hours. Yeah. It's an investment. But I listened to them back to back. And I was hopeful for one of the first times that I've been politically in a long time. And the reason was, I thought both of them were super intelligent. Yep. I didn't think I agreed with either of them going into listening politically. And both of them talk about going from the bottom up. And I, I, under, I understand that how you get there and how you're thinking about it from a policy standpoint, there's differences. But this idea of working from the inside out, this idea of arming people with the mindset and with the skills to be successful, and this idea that we do have inequality is actually like pretty shared. Prison reform is probably, and I'm not a political expert, but prison reform is such a good example. Like both sides are saying, yeah, we need to do better. And so hearing you talk gives me optimism because I'm focused more on that individual or more on that company and more on doing what I can do every day. But to hear you and your passion and your uh, desire to continue to move toward the right thing uh, is refreshing uh, today. And uh, I think, I think the last thing I'll say is I think if we can get away from these labels of Democrat and Republican and just saying, Oh, you're a Democrat or you're Republican. And like, let's just understand that there are going to be, like, I don't know how we got to this place where all Republicans need to believe this and all Democrats need to believe this. It's like, let's just hear each other, listen to each other. And for me, at least, listening to those podcasts back to back, it wasn't that Ferris agreed with everything that Koch said. It wasn't that Rogan agreed with everything that Bernie said. But like, we do live in a society now with podcasts, with information that it doesn't all have to be a quick debate where mm-hmm. we have three minutes. It doesn't all have to be 140 words or 280 or whatever Twitter is now. Like, we actually if we leverage the internet the right way can learn and grow and all become more empathetic and have more gratitude and be curious. Like there's nothing holding us back from that. So um, Couldn't I'm, agree more. I'm excited about that. I, I appreciate very much hearing that. And, and I would say what, what I love about Ferris and Rogan and, and some of these, uh, these media types today is that you can have that real dialogue and that's what we need to be doing as a society is actually talking about things and not sound bites and not um, scream typing at each other on the internet because that helps absolutely no one. Um, and it perpetuates misunderstandings. Uh, we, we talk here a little bit about this idea of, of preference falsification, which is the commonly held belief is not something that people think that others have. And so they're scared to speak up and share that because they feel like they're on the outside or they might be attacked for it. When if they would just speak up, other people would say, oh, hey, I feel that way too. And look, very few people are going to agree about how to solve all of the problems or what all the policy proposals should be. It's working together to build a society where everyone has, um, has an opportunity, right? And so 
at the end of the day, what, what I think inspires me most, because you're talking about what gives you hope, is there are an increasing number of outlets and individuals driving this sense of what can we do together? What can we work on productively? There are always going to be the screamers and the tribe, the sense of tribalism, but the data shows that the, those that are screaming the loudest and those that label the hardest are such a small minority of the country. So I, I mean, I don't watch the news at all. Um, I get my news from a number of sources like Apple News and, and some other aggregators because I need to stay informed. But I don't read most, I don't read or listen to most of the insanity out there. And we talked a little bit about before you hit record about Ryan Holiday. Ryan in in stillness is the key and some of his his other work on on stoicism he says i think it's much more important to learn about what drove people 2000 years ago 100 years ago 50 years ago 10 years ago than oh my god what did someone just say on twitter about this one thing let's cancel them let's shame, whatever that insanity is because we're facing the same problems that the stoics face the romans face the uh that people throughout society have faced throughout throughout history have faced uh, again and again and again and so there is an there's a need to pay attention because as we've talked about bad policy can really hurt people's lives and in some cases can can end their life um while we do need to pay attention and make sure that we're making productive steps forward the noise is overwhelming if you allow it to be. And so it's better to focus on where you can find common ground with people to drive productive um, steps forward. And we find that we can have common ground with a lot of different individuals that um, it, it's inspiring. We got we made a lot of waves as a community um, earlier this year that uh, the Charles Koch Foundation and uh, George Soros's charity um, help start the Quincy Institute on foreign policy because as evidenced by the release of the Afghanistan papers, our foreign policy um, has had a lot of failures. And that's an area where not many people would assume that Charles Koch and George Soros could even have a conversation. Not, that There are not many people who think that George Soros and, and um, Charles Koch could even have a conversation. That's, that's absurd. They absolutely can have a conversation, but this is an area where um, these two organizations don't agree on a lot of things, but they do agree on this, so let's drive productive change forward. Two things around communication. One is descriptions are more powerful than evaluations. We tend to just evaluate good and bad, and if we get into descriptions, we're much more powerful when we can describe, and even when we're given feedback, I talk about this with sports coaches, like how can you give descriptions instead of evaluations? And then two is I always break down uh, assumptions, assessments, and assertions. Mm -hmm. And when we live in assumptions, we run into all kinds of problems. When we assess, we're, we're at least playing, we're curious, but we should all be moving towards assertions and trying to find assertions or truths. And so those three A's are something that have always stuck with me communication-wise. Last thing I'm curious about for you is what you intentionally do to make sure that you're at your best self. So uh, this is a podcast called Intentional Performers. I'm always curious about any habits or things that you do to make sure that you're showing up the way that you want to show up? So I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and um, a very big full-time job and some other uh, commitments like being chairman at Mizzen and Maine and, and, and others. So uh, I would not say that I have harmonized uh, my intentionality perfectly, but it is... Um, it is a mix of those things that I wrote about a few years ago. I don't still carry my Memento Mori coin with me every day, but I do keep it with me a lot. 
Um, it's the journaling and just as Tim Ferriss says, getting your monkey mind out on paper, um, trying to find time to read, uh, learning from those who've gone before me, uh, learning from guys like Ryan Holiday who put out just amazing content. I do read his Daily Stoic and Daily Dad, which I highly recommend people sign up for. Uh, those are um, really great two-minute digestible um, nuggets of wisdom. And then, um, you know, I think I think it's more trying to just make sure that I maintain that mindset. When I lose that, that mindset of... Um, that memento mori mindset or that I think things are bigger or more important than they really are. That's when I find myself most out of line. Um, and then um, I think also just giving myself that permission to know I, I want to sleep more. I want to work out more. I want to eat better. I want to uh, be more attentive. I want to do more work. I, uh, it's not possible. And so while not allowing myself to be lazy and saying nothing matters, it's allowing myself that freedom to say, you know what? I worked a lot later than I intended to. I'm not going to get up in the morning to work out because I need my sleep and I need to make that right trade-off so that I can show up tomorrow the way that I need to. Um, that's real easy to let you slide into um, complacency, but it's pushing yourself while understanding how to, how to find that balance. And then constantly checking my priorities. Am I making sure that I'm making the right decisions based on the things that actually matter most to me? Um, I have priority. I travel a lot. Uh, if you follow, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, view from plane windows uh, is a lot. And knowing that when I'm home in in now DC, it's making sure that I get home to have dinner with my son and my daughter and, and my wife. Um, and knowing that I don't get as many moments at home as I might like. So when I am home, trying to put my phone away, just be present. You talked about complacency, and I have a framework that I use, which is satisfaction is actually what leads to success. Complacency is actually what leads to failure, and satisfaction will actually fight against failure, and complacency will fight against success. As I hear your story, it's so clear that you're not complacent, and you're constantly looking for your own sense of self-satisfaction mm -hmm. and your own sense of fulfillment. So welcome to D.C. Thank or you. Virginia or <laughs> wherever it is yep. you'll end up living, and uh, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, I just want to give you a megaphone to promote what you're doing here, to promote any of the nonprofits that you guys are involved with or anything that you're passionate about. Let people know where they can find you on social media. I know you're on Twitter and Instagram. Um, just... Uh, free free flow. Yeah, so Twitter is the, the open platform for me. So it's at Kevin S. Lavelle. Uh, and then Mizzen and Main. We didn't talk much about it, but Performance Fabric Dress Shirts. Um, it's uh, at Mizzen and Main on all of the all of the socials. Um, it's the idea for it was a performance fabric dress shirt. All the benefits of athletic wear, but you can wear it in a button down. You don't have to iron it or dry clean it. Everyone told us it was a crazy idea that would never work. And now uh, just about everybody's doing something similar. So we must be doing something right. Uh, and then I work for Stand Together. Uh, so you can go to standtogether.org to learn about all the things that we do. There's way too many things that we touch that I could even possibly promote. But um, just share an example of uh, three organizations that I'm directly engaged with personally. One is um, Youth Entrepreneurs that teaches entrepreneurship education in public schools. Uh, and it's that entrepreneurial mindset. It's not just the tools of being an entrepreneur, but it's that entrepreneurial mindset and uh, being contribution motivated and, and um, opening kids' eyes that might not have ever thought that that was a possibility. 
YE alumni have started, I think, nearly 9,000 businesses, which is just awesome. Um, and then uh, another organization is called Urban Specialists, and it's former gang leaders who are going into um, tough communities starting in South Dallas and a number of others um, to help divert kids away from the path of, of gangs and violence. Um, Bishop Omar and Anton Lucky um, have become close personal friends. When we lived in Dallas, um, we would host some of the students every month or two at our house and have dinner, just get to know each other and have a conversation and build bridges in our community. Uh, and then Cafe Momentum in Dallas, if you ever go, um, don't miss it. It's one of the best restaurants in Dallas. Uh, a really uh, one of the most remarkable humans I've ever met, Chad Hauser. Uh, famous chef, great, great career trajectory in Dallas. Um, uh, was doing a volunteer program where he was teaching kids in um, juvenile detention how to make ice cream. Changed the course of his life because he opened up a restaurant called Cafe Momentum where the entire restaurant is staffed by juvenile offenders. And um, they work over a 12-month program every station in the restaurant, so they get job training. But more importantly, they get engaged um, with people who care for them and love them and give them that sense of understanding of what their path forward is. Because some of them, they either don't have much of a family or it's a really tough family or their family is really struggling to get by. Um, and so uh, Cafe Momentum, uh, we've hosted our, our holiday party there at Miz and Maine for a number of years. Uh, it's an amazing organization they're expanding. They've got an awesome partnership um, with uh, a couple of our organizations that we've partnered with. So uh, excited to help them see them scale. Those are some examples of organizations that we support. and. Encourage people to check it out, um, and uh, they're on the socials as well. Awesome. I have to share this just as a closing. So I started my day off co-oping for my son's preschool and got to be around uh, three-and-a-half and, and four-year-old kids. Uh, then I came, we're in Arlington, Virginia, and I was walking to get lunch, and I slipped, and I fell, and I've got mud on my <laughs> jeans. I don't know if Kevin, he's it. Yeah, you're muddy. Look at that. Look at that. He, Look at that. I tried to clean it all up. I was going to meet with a guy who started a clothing company and I've got muddy jeans. <laughs> um, and then it'll end tonight with dinner with my wife uh, and I've got some stuff in between. But I, I just wanted to tell that story because to me, there aren't good days or bad days. There's moments that exist in between. And for the last two hours or so, I've enjoyed just having these moments with you. And uh, this was a highlight for me and just getting to know your story and also your mindset uh, and how you're thinking about what you're up to today. So I just want to thank you for your time and thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Kevin, looking forward to getting to know you better. I want to give a shout out to Harris Vanneroff. Harris does our show notes. And when I said, Harris, hey, I'm going to talk with Kevin who started Miz and Maine. He goes, I only wear Miz and Maine shirts. Uh, and he swears by your shirt. So Harris, if you're listening, and I know you will because you do the show notes, make sure you give a lot of shout outs. Maybe we'll get a picture of you wearing Miz and Maine. Um, and he's a big fan. So uh, thanks for all that you're doing and looking forward to getting to know you better as well. Thanks, Brian. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Over time, reading a lot and talking with other mentors and having things go really badly, you start to realize, and I said it aloud, and I encourage the people that manage people beneath me to say the same thing, which is, if I care about you, I will give you feedback because I care that you will get better and you will learn from these things. If I don't care about you, I don't really care what happens to you, and so I don't care if I give you feedback. Now, that's the ideal. It's just hard to have hard conversations, and people that are really good at that I think are some of the best managers. And it's not that they're hard on people all the time, it's that they confront the challenges that need to be confronted.